to the church or to the letter written for the church in Sardis. Chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as is typical, there's three or four different parts of these letters. And we'll come and consider this one under these four headings. We'll see first an assessment in verse 1. And then an exhortation, actually a multiple exhortation in verses 2 and 3. Thirdly, an encouragement in verse 4. And then fifthly, a threefold motive in verses 5 to 6. So Jesus assesses them. He exhorts them, he encourages them, and then motivates them. Now, the city of Sardis was, in fact, tragically similar to the church in Sardis. At one time, it was the capital of the great kingdom of Lydia. But by first century, it had become but a shell of its former glory. And tragically, so too, the church at Sardis, in many ways, had become like the city, but a shell of its former glory. And so notice Jesus' assessment in verse 1. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Our Savior describes himself as he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. It's as if he has the spirit in one hand and the stars in the other. Now, you know, by seven spirits is meant the Holy Spirit. And by the stars are meant the angels, likely the ministers of the churches. And thus, Christ describes himself as the one who possesses the Holy Spirit in one hand and the ministers of the churches in the other hand. And the reason he describes himself in this way is clarified. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. In other words, Christ knew the church was largely characterized by a dead formalism. It claimed to be alive. It professed to be alive, but was in fact dead. Now, this means at least one of two things. It means that the majority of the members of the church were hypocrites and lost. That is, they were spiritually dead. They were not saved. Or else, 
many of the members in the church were very weak and almost dead. And we're going to see that probably both of those are true. There were faithful people in the church. There were those who were dying and need to be revived in the church. And then, no doubt, there were dead sinners who professed to be Christians in the church. This was a mixed church, like many churches, though this one was uniquely bad. There's really nothing good Jesus says about it. Possibly in verse 4 there's some positive things, but really it's a rather negative letter. Our Savior reminds this church that he possesses the Holy Spirit in one hand and the ministers of the gospel in his other hand. So why does Jesus specifically describe himself as such? Well, what does a dead soul or a dead church need but the Holy Spirit blessing the word of God in the church of God? Perhaps we could say they needed Christ who has the Holy Spirit and blesses by his spirit the word of God as preached by the ministers of God. Or we could just simply say such a church needs Jesus because Jesus is the source of spiritual life. But how does Jesus communicate that life to dying or dead souls? He communicates that life through the word as blessed by the spirit. And so this and this is why Jesus thusly describes himself as such. For example, listen to these words of Jesus in John 6 and 63. It is the spirit who gives life. Brother, this is what the church needed, life. It was dead. It was dying or dead. It needed life. And it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And then he says, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. In other words, the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, communicates life to our spirits. When he says that the word of God is spirit, he means it's spiritual. He means it's the means through which the spirit uses to communicate life to our souls. Brethren, the Holy Spirit of God always and only uses the word. He always and only uses the word. And that's encouraging. It's encouraging because we know where to get life from. We get life from Jesus. But how does Jesus communicate that life? By his spirit, through his word. And thus he has the seven spirits in one hand, and he has the seven stars, the ministers, the leadership of the churches, whose responsibility it is to preach and teach the word. Listen to Lenski. These seven spirits are the Holy Spirit. All spiritual life is created by him. The spirit works life and the activity of life only by means of the word. And this word is committed officially to the ministry, which is symbolized by the seven stars. And so Christ reveals himself to this dying and dead church as the one who has life to give. Brethren, what they needed he provided. All right? That's an assessment. Notice, secondly, in verses 2 and 3, an exhortation. 
And this contains basically three parts. Well, let me look at it in three parts. You have the what in verse 2, the how in verse 3a, and the why in 3b. Notice what they're to do, verse 2. Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain. Now, there's several parts to this phrase in verse 2. By strengthen the things that remain is meant, strengthen the spiritual life that remained in small measure. And this is why I said that the church wasn't in total dead. Many of the members possibly or even likely were totally dead. That is, they were not converted. But then there were others who were dying. And they had to strengthen that which remains. The imagery is that of blowing on the coals. There's still coals in the church, brother. At least in some of the souls. They were not in total dead. There was a spark of life. There was some hot coals within their soul. And and when he says strengthen, he means to blow upon them. Don't let them go out. That's what he's saying. Blow upon them before they in total go out. And thus, by being watchful is meant, watch out for all that would weaken or would dampen or hinder the revival of those coals or flame in the soul. Watch out for anything that would rival your responsibility of, by the grace of God, kindling afresh that flame that's almost gone out in your soul. Thus the church wasn't in total dead. There was a measure of life that remained in it, and Jesus is here exhorting them to strengthen it, to strengthen that which remains. And how are they to do this? Well, verse 3, Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast, repent. Brethren, isn't this just tremendous? Jesus not only identifies the problem, tells them to fix it, but then provides the how-tos with regards to fixing it. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Okay, so remember. Hold fast and repent. We're there to remember and there to repent. And this is Jesus' remedy for a dead and or dying soul or a dead and dying church. The first thing they're to do is remember. Brethren, it, all, it almost always starts with remembrance. Remember. But what are they to remember? He says, remember therefore how you have received and heard. Now, there are several texts in the New Testament that um, speak about Christians having heard and received what? The gospel and Christ in that gospel. Brother, that's what he's telling them to do. Remember the olden days, how you heard the gospel and received it with such joy and gladness. How there was fire in the bosom, in your soul. 
And that fire has gone all but out. It's become just some hot coals. And so what is the first thing to do to get that fire back a-roaring? Well, remember the message you heard and received long ago. Brethren, you have to remember the gospel. And it's not just remember the gospel, okay, the gospel. Jesus lived, he died, he rose, he ascends, and now he reigns. But it's remembering it in such a way that it kindles afresh in your heart love and adoration for the one at the heart of the gospel message. What is the gospel message but the good news about Jesus? Brother, that's why we have to hear about Jesus. We have to hear about the gospel because it's the means God uses to kindle afresh in our hearts faith and a fire. But not only are we to remember, but we're also to, verse 3, hold fast and repent. That is, they're to hold fast Christ as made known in the gospel and repent from all sin. And so remember what we've said previously. Jesus, in almost all of these seven letters, in one way or another, exhorts his beloved people to repent. But remember, repentance is turning from, and it's always connected to, and implies turning to. So as turn away from self-trust, self-satisfaction, self-glory, and turning to Christ and clinging to him as made known to you in the gospel. Brother, I know we all know this because we're told it at least once a week in some way or another. And here's why. Because it's the remedy for a dead soul and a dying or decaying soul. Do you know what a dead church needs? Jesus. Do you know what a dead soul needs? Jesus. Okay, that's what a sinner needs, right? But guess what a dying soul or a decaying soul needs? A sick saint needs Jesus. Turn away from your, yourself, turn away from your sin, and hold fast to that one who's made known to you in the gospel, that one you received, you heard about, and you, rece and you received many years ago. You have to keep hearing about him, you have to keep turning away from your sin and you have to keep turning to him and clinging to him with all of your heart. And then he notice in verse 3, be why. Therefore, if you will not watch, that is, if you will not wake up and do the things that I've just commanded, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, Jesus has threatened this before, hasn't he? Coming upon the church I think it's talking about a spiritual coming. It's not talking about a physical or bodily coming. Jesus is going to come again, but that's in the future. He's talking about something more present. I think what he's talking about is a judgment upon the church that would result in them not only dying, but in total being dead. I think he's saying... If you're not willing to take advantage 
of the means of grace that I've put at, at your feet, then I might come and take them from you. And in essence, if he comes and takes them from us, he will be unchurching us or he'll be just simply leaving us to ourselves. Brother, I think that's what he's, he means. It's quiet. It, you won't even know he came and left. It's like a thief. The problem is we'll just never wake up. What a tragedy that is. The church would just keep going. A person can just keep going and never wake up. All Jesus has to do is, is just, in essence, nothing. Really, that's what, when he says, I'm going to come upon you as a judgment, another way of saying that is, I'm not going to come upon you in mercy or grace. We refer to this in theological terms as a judicial judgment. It's a response to our repeated refusal to heed his warning. Well, we know, remember in Romans 1, Paul speaks about how God has given them over. Given them over. That's a, ju a judicial judgment. He doesn't have to put anything in them. He just leaves them to themselves. And brethren, left to ourselves, we're a mess. He leaves communities. He leaves nations. And here we find that he potentially could leave a church to themselves. And if he doesn't come, because remember, he has the spirit. He has the means. To, he, he alone has the means to blow upon the, the coals. And in essence, what he's saying is, unless you do these things, I won't come and blow upon the coals. Or else I'll come as a thief in the night in judgment. It's the same thing. It's a terrible thing. And one evidence that he's come in that judgment is that there's no real humble desire to fan the flame into a fire. And we'll be content with the same old, same old. And brethren, surely that would be a tragedy. But he doesn't stop there. He does give some encouragement in verse 4 you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy in other words the, the church wasn't in total dead as I've said it seems evident there were dead sinners hypocrites and there were dying saints who needed revival and then there was a remnant among that church who had remained faithful. And notice a few things in verse 4. First, there were a few people who did not defile their garments. If you notice this particular letter, Jesus speaks often of garments. And of course, that's symbolic for purity. They didn't defile their garments. They kept their souls pure. They kept their souls morally and theologically or doctrinally pure. In fact, if we continue to read in the book of Revelation, we will find that this imagery of garments 
and robes is often used. They kept themselves pure. The imagery is that the world defiles the soul. And uh, our Savior is using a, a beautiful imagery to help us grasp it. It's like we have a garment and we have to keep our garments clean. We have to keep our souls clean. We have to keep our minds clean. And there were some, albeit probably a small remnant, who in the church had yet kept themselves clean. And then he says, they shall walk with me in white. Now that simply means that they will be with Jesus in heaven. In white, again, speaks of purity, and in this case, it speaks of glorification. They've kept themselves pure, generally speaking, in the world. And as a result, they will walk with me in white. Brethren, there's no better short phrase in the whole Bible. Well, there's, there's several of them coming up in chapters 21 and chapter 22 that may rival this one. But there's few little phrases in the whole Bible that better describe heaven than this one. To walk with Jesus. That, of course, is thinking back to that imagery of the garden when God and Adam walked together. That meant fellowship, right? They had perfect fellowship together in the garden. God walked with man in the garden. And then because of sin, they no longer walk together. Can two walk together unless they be in agreement? And then in the gospel, alas, there's a reconciliation, brethren. And now we walk with God as Christians. We fellowship with God as Christians, but not perfectly. There's coming a time when we will walk with Jesus in white. That means we'll be glorified. Now we don't walk with him in white, not in the sense that we're without sin. We walk with him. We're justified. We, we strive to keep our souls clean in terms of our sanctification. But we're not glorified. And so there's a remaining principle of sin in our hearts. But there's coming a time, brethren, when we will love him with unsinning hearts. This is what this phrase means. We're going to walk with him in white. That's heaven. What is heaven? Heaven is being with Jesus, communing with Jesus, fellowshipping with Jesus, loving and serving Jesus with a glorified body and soul in the new heavens and earth, which is a return, a return to the garden. That's heaven. It's heaven on earth. A return to the garden wherein we can walk with God in white. And then he says that they alone are worthy. And this, of course, must be understood as a gospel worthiness. A gospel worthiness. They were made worthy by the gospel. Yes, they kept themselves clean. Yes, they kept their garments pure. But they did it 
all by grace. And so, brethren, nobody will go to heaven beating on their chest. Everybody will go to heaven saying, Praise be the Lamb who alone, what is it that they're saying in heaven right now, according to chapter 4 and 5? Who alone is worthy to receive our praise. So we're worthy in a gospel sense. We're worthy in a gracious sense. But the point still being, nobody goes to heaven without keeping their garments clean. Nobody goes to heaven because they keep their garments clean. Nobody goes to heaven without keeping them clean. It just simply says, the way to heaven is narrow. It's a narrow path, brethren. And if we veer off it and get lost back into the world, we better be fearful that we potentially never truly, we never truly entered in at the narrow gate and was never truly a Christian. And keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that thought here in a minute. All right, now there's a motivation he gives us. And the motivation is threefold. Perhaps we can say there's three blessed incentives given by Christ in verse 5 to encourage us to keep our garments clean and to persevere in the narrow path. Notice first, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Brother, is saying the same thing what he just said. He shall walk with me in white. He's now saying it in a different way. He who overcomes, that is, who endures to the end, who, who keeps his garment clean and doesn't defile himself, he shall be clothed in white garments. That means his soul shall be perfected and his body shall be glorified. That's what it means. White, of course, again, is symbolic for purity. And thus, white garments here refers to our glorified and perfected state, both in body and soul. Secondly, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Now, this is really the phrase I just was thinking about a moment ago. It's a difficult phrase in some ways to understand. I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Now, some of you might know this phrase is actually used by some professing Christians to deny certain doctrines clearly found in the Bible, such as election and the perseverance of saints. And the reason why they use a text like this to deny those doctrines, I think, is rather evident. Because other texts teach us that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life from eternity. And only the elect's names are written in the Lamb's book of life from eternity. And every single person whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life, brethren, will go to heaven. In fact, we're told that at least four times following this passage in the book of Revelation, the phrase, the book of life, comes up. And in two of those cases, it's clear that everybody written in that book of life will go to heaven. And in the other two, there's indication that 
those that there are some who whose name will be removed from that book of life. And so how and this one seems to indicate the potential of that, doesn't it? So how do we answer these seemingly conflicting facts? Well, I suggest the answer actually lies right here in Jesus' letter to Sardis, brethren. In verse 1 especially. Because remember in verse 1, he describes those who have a name that you are alive, but are dead. They claim to be Christians. And thus, in that sense, they, their profession includes them claiming their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. They have a name of being a Christian. They profess to be a Christian. But brethren, anybody who professes to be a Christian and isn't in fact a Christian and dies as such, then in that sense, their names will be blotted out of the book of life because they were never really written in the book of life. In other words, what Jesus is here speaking about is the profession, the claim to be a Christian when in fact you're not a Christian. Those in the church in Sardis all were baptized and they were all members of the church. Their names were written on the rolls. Brethren, they did write down names in rolls in churches. And these particular people, all of them, the ones that were dead, the ones that were dying, and the ones that were faithful, they were all baptized members of the church in Sardis and they all had their names written. They all had their names written in the church roles. But brethren, surely you know, you can have your name written in the church roles and in that sense, profess to have it written in the Lamb's book of life, but in fact not have it written in the Lamb's book of life. Just think of that for a second. You could have your name on the church rolls, but not in the Lamb's book of life. And that's what Jesus means when he says, those who do not endure to the end, their names will be blotted out because they were never in fact written in there from the beginning. And then he says, thirdly, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. That is, Jesus himself will confess us as his before his father and the angels in the day of judgment. He's going to confess, this is one of my lambs. This is one of my beloved sheep given to me by my father in eternity past. And thus their names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And I came into this earth born of the Virgin Mary to live and to die for them in a special way. And then I came by my spirit and I gave them life. And then I kept giving them life, even though at times they, their spiritual uh, health decayed and that flame of, of faith in their soul, it got real small even at times to just coals, but I never let it go out. Father, I kept them 
and they kept my word and they proved faithful to the end by my grace and here they are and I present them to you in white garments. That's what Jesus is talking about. Listen to what one man said. He said, envision the scene. You are standing in the blazing presence of God and all-consuming fire, the God of infinite and unending glory, the God of unsearchable and incomparable righteousness. There's God. And then he says, small, frail, weak as you are, Jesus takes hold of your hand and leads you before his Father. And beneath the penetrating gaze of myriads of angels, then he happily and joyfully and confidently declares, Father, he is mine. I am his. He is clothed in white. I've paid his debt. I suffered his penalty. He is clean. He is pure. He is in me and I in him. He is righteous. Let me close with two observations. One, it's possible to give the appearance of life and yet all the while be truly and spiritually dead. Look again at verse one. I know your works, but you are dead. Brethren, these were dead sinners who did works. They were dead works, as James would call them, but nevertheless, they were works. Works in and of itself, or in and of themselves, do not prove life. Dead people, to put it plainly, can still work. Because look at what Jesus says, I know your works and I know you claim to have life, but you don't. You're actually dead. Now we find a little bit of um, perhaps uh, clarification on this in verse two and a phrase that I skipped over. Where Jesus says, I have not found your works perfect before God. See, Before man, you have works, and you may even get praised by man. But before God, these works are not perfect. So the question then becomes, what does Jesus mean when he says that they are not perfect? I have weighed your works. That's what the imagery here is. I have weighed your works in the balance, and I found them to be imperfect before God. Well, you might know the word perfect really means complete. It can mean different things. And here the idea of completion or whole or full is is meant. Complete or perfect works are works. Complete and or perfect works are works done by faith from love For God's glory. And Jesus says he's gone beyond the external. And he's consulted. He's examined the internal. And he's found their works lacking. Wanting. 
They were not perfect works. They were not complete works. They were not full works. They were flawed works. And the reason why they were flawed, brethren, is they were not done by faith out of love for the glory of God. True works are done by faith out of love for the glory of God. Are all of our works perfectly done by faith out of love and for the glory of God? Absolutely not, brethren. That's why we have a Savior whose works were perfectly done out of faith, out of love, and for the glory of His Father. But Christians do, generally speaking, produce works that are done out of faith and love to Jesus and for the glory of God. And this is how, brethren, this is how we examine ourselves to see whether or not we're alive spiritually. Don't just ask yourself, do I do works? That's not enough. Everybody does works. What kind of works do you do? Let Jesus weigh you before God. Let Jesus weigh your works before God. And discern whether or not your works are perfect, whole, or complete in that they're done by faith, out of love, for the glory of God. Brethren, why do we want to keep our garments undefiled? Why do we want to keep our hearts and souls and minds clean? Because we love God in Christ for what he has done for us, and we want to honor and glorify him in this wicked and defiled world, brethren. That's why we do what we do. Okay, so you're baptized, and you have a name. You're written in the, in the church's rolls. You're a professing Christian tonight. Ask yourself, why do you do, how do you do, and why do you do what you do? Do you work, out of, do you work by faith, out of love, and for the glory of God? You see, brethren, really what we find here is that our Savior is more important than, uh, or he considers more important, or he's more concerned with the quality of our works than the quantity of our works. Now, the quantity is good. Remember, we saw last week that he praised the church for its growth. They had both, quality and quantity. But brother, it's not just about doing more, doing more and doing more. It's about doing more in the right way and for the right reason. Jesus examined their hearts before God and he found them to be imperfect. Brethren, it is possible, isn't it, to give the appearance of life and yet all the while be truly and spiritually dead. I can give many examples. Judas, the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees look good on the outside, but what about the inside? They were whitewashed tombs with dead man's bones on the inside. We have to judge ourselves accordingly. And secondly, it's possible, and finally, 
It's possible to be nearly dead. It's possible to be nearly dead and yet by the grace of God to strengthen or revive that which remains. Brethren, all of us have to confess that no one present here is where they want to be spiritually. And to the degree that that's true of you, then, brethren, this passage is for us. Because here comes Jesus to us afresh as a little church like Sardis. And do you know what he says to us? These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. All the life we need, brethren, all the reviving that we need is to be found in Christ. And he communicates that grace and that life to us by his word and his spirit. He hasn't hidden it somewhere where we have to go off and try to find it. No, he says, here I am in your midst. And I have in this hand the Holy Spirit. And I have in this hand the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit can bless the Word of God to communicate and to increase and strengthen grace and life in your dead, decaying, or dying soul. Irrespective of where you're at, brethren, on, on that uh, spectrum. There's life to be had in Christ. And there's life to be had in Christ by the Spirit in and through the Word. And so I want to stand and sing with you. Uh, hymn 99, but I want to show you something first. Hymn 99. I want to point out there's actually several phrases in this hymn that's most beautiful, but I want to focus on this, on this phrase in verse 3. My name from the palms of his hand. Go back and think about this imagery of having our names written in the book of life. Okay, So admittedly, this, song, this uh, hymn doesn't use that exact imagery of having our names written in the book of life, but it actually has something just as good. And that is the imagery of our names being engra engraved in the very palms and hands of God himself. Verse 3. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Now who knows what indelible means? You can't erase it. Exactly. It means lasting or permanent. You know, uh, children, I use a, a permanent marker to write on my CDs. When I buy a, a download, I get a cheap CD and I burn it on there and I write on there the name of the album. And it doesn't come off. Well, it will come off eventually. But not this. It's permanent grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given, that's the Holy Spirit, more happy but not more secure 
the glorified spirits in heaven. They're more happy than me because they're, they have white garments, but they're not more secure than me because my name is written in the book of life. Let's stand and sing hymn 99. Please be seated. 